talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Welcome to another episode of Talking Benefits. We're changing up the format a bit this episode. After a few updates on topics we covered last month, we will be focusing on one topic, disaster planning. Hurricane Harvey devastated the Houston area last week, and Hurricane Irma is set to hit Florida shores soon. Right, Justin. While plans may not feel the direct impact of the storm, many certainly will need to accommodate members in its path. In this episode, we're going to delve into how natural disasters affect us in the benefits world. At the end of the episode, we'll hear a true story about how a plan helped support plan participants who are impacted with Hurricane Katrina. Sounds like a good plan, Julie. First up, let's get a quick update on everything else happening in the benefits industry. Just a note, this month's episode is being recorded on September 5th at 2 p.m. Central Time. Kelly, can you get us started on some healthcare updates? When we left off last time, Congress had just attempted to repeal and replace the ACA, but were not successful. Then Congress went on their August break. In the meantime, President Trump continued to pressure Congress to accomplish this task, but other pressing business, such as passing a budget, will likely take center stage when Congress gets back to work. At this time, it does not seem likely they will be able to make another ACA repeal attempt before their budget reconciliation time frame runs out. Yes, I think this would be a good place to insert a quick foundation from the foundation. Earlier this year, Congress passed a budget resolution to use the budget reconciliation or fast track rules to pass an ACA repeal so they could avoid a filibuster by Senate Democrats. If you want to know why the budget reconciliation process avoids a filibuster in the Senate, listen to our fifth episode from this past May called Washington Strikes Back. In that episode, I explained how a bill becomes a law. So, swinging back to new news, The Senate parliamentarian has recently ruled that the option to use budget reconciliation will expire at the end of the fiscal year, that is September 30th. So if Congress wishes to use this option after that time, they will have to pass another budget resolution to try again in the 2018 budget year. Right you are, Julie. As for new developments related to health care, much attention has been focused on the 2018 ACA exchanges, also known as marketplaces. Because new health care reform was not passed, the question is, do the exchanges have enough support to continue at least one more year? President Trump is approving the all-important cost-sharing subsidies on a month-by-month basis. The subsidies were approved in mid-August, but we don't know yet about the months for the rest of 2017, let alone 2018. It seems like there's been a number of recent activities related to the exchanges and subsidies. Kelly, do you want to enlighten us about those? Certainly. 
Number one, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions is holding bipartisan hearings in early September with the goal of finding ways to stabilize the ACA exchanges for 2018. They will be hearing from governors, state insurance commissioners, and other healthcare experts. Number two, Ohio Governor John Kasich, a Republican, and Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, a Democrat, have released a bipartisan proposal with their ideas on how to stabilize ACA markets. At least six other governors are supporting the plan as well. Number three, the Congressional Budget Office released a report saying if cost-sharing subsidies ceased, premiums for silver plans on the health insurance exchanges would be 20% higher in 2018 and 25% higher in 2020 and beyond. The report also said that eliminating subsidies would actually cost the government more, increasing the deficits by $194 billion from 2017 through 2026. Number four, sources within HHS say that the Trump administration is cutting 90% of the amount originally budgeted to promote enrollment in the 2018 exchanges. It is also cutting the amount available for grants to ACA navigators by 40%, from $63 million to $36 million. Navigators are people typically working through nonprofit organizations who help individuals enroll in the exchanges. In addition, there will be a shorter enrollment period, 45 days instead of 90 days. All of this creates concern that enrollment in the exchanges will be lower, which means they will be less appealing to insurers in the future. And number five, to end with some positive news about healthcare, currently all counties in the U.S. will have at least one healthcare provider for their 2018 exchange. Also, according to data from the National Center for Health Statistics, more Americans had health insurance during the first three months of 2017 than ever before. Specifically, their data shows that 20.5 million Americans have gained coverage since 2010, the year ACA became law. Thank you for those updates, Kelly. And next we will cover the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule, also known as the conflict of interest rule. This is the rule that requires financial advisors to act as fiduciaries, acting in the best interests of investors. Julie, can you fill us in on the latest? Sure can, Justin. On August 7th, the DOL released a second set of frequently asked questions, or FAQs, defining whether recommendations to contribute to or increase contributions to a plan constitute fiduciary investment advice, and whether recommendations on plan design changes to increase participation and contribution rates also constitute fiduciary investment advice. This guidance is for use during the transition period. And speaking of the transition period, on August 30th, the DOL released a proposal to extend the transition period for the best interest contract or BIC exemption and other provisions from January 1st of 2018 to July 1st of 2019. They also released proposed amendments to the BIC exemption and two other prohibited transaction exemptions. The DOL is accepting comments through September 15th. 
Also on August 30th, the DOL released Field Assistance Bulletin 2017-3, providing information on enforcement during the transition period related to a very specific provision on arbitration limitations. Thanks, Julie. It seems that fiduciary rule is constantly under review. For all of you Julie fans, I'm proud to mention that Julie recently made a guest appearance on the Society of Actuaries Research Insights podcast. The episode is titled Financial Wellness Number 2 and is focused on workplace initiatives to promote financial wellness. Check it out by searching Society of Actuaries in your podcast app. Moving on to our next topic, Justin, can you update us on the latest developments related to the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act, also known as MEPRA? Yes, Kelly. Uh, So we had recently discussed the United Furniture Workers Pension Fund A from Nashville, Tennessee. The Treasury approved reductions, and the PBGC approved a partition on July 20th. On August 28th, it was announced that participants had approved the reductions. There were 9,600 participants and beneficiaries eligible to vote. 9,300 received ballots. Of those, 21% voted to reject the suspension. Just over 1,000 ballots were in favor of the reduction. We had discussed this before on the podcast, but in these votes, an abstention, or not voting, is the same as a yes vote. The reductions were approved and go into effect on September 1st. The PBGC provided a breakdown of the reductions, and under the law, benefits of 7,100 participants will not be reduced because the participant is aged or disabled or has benefits that are not more than 10% greater than PBGC guarantees would provide. The remaining 2,800 participants will see future benefit reductions averaging 12.7%. And moving to the New York State Teamsters Fund, the Treasury approved benefit reductions on August 3rd. The participant vote opened on August 15th and ends on September 6th. If approved, reductions will begin on October 1st. Julie, you recently addressed a Texas Supreme Court case regarding same-sex marriage. We have some August activity on that, is that correct? That's right. In an earlier episode, we discussed a pending lawsuit in Texas that's looking at benefits provided to same-sex spouses. On June 30th, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that while same-sex marriage is legal after the Obergefell versus Hodges decision, the, quote, reach and ramifications, unquote, of the rights of gay couples still has to be determined. This case, called Pigeon versus Turner, reversed a lower court's ruling that confirmed the city of Houston's decision to extend health and life insurance benefits to the same-sex spouses of city employees. The case was remanded to the trial court in Houston. While Houston's mayor has said that all spousal benefits will continue to be paid while the case is pending, on August 10th, three city workers and their spouses sued the city asking for a court order to stop any possible action that would force the city to stop paying benefits. And speaking of Houston, our hearts go out to those in southeastern Texas who have been affected by Hurricane Harvey and the resulting flooding. Plus, the latest news updates say that another large hurricane named Irma could be headed for Florida. That brings up another benefits-related topic. How do employers and benefit plan sponsors deal with disasters like a hurricane, a fire, or even a pandemic? Yes, that's really a tough situation. It's highly recommended that an organization have a disaster plan in place. 
You can't anticipate every need or situation, but a disaster plan can be a great help. Also, the federal government provides assistance. So when you say government assistance and disaster, I think of FEMA right away. Kelly, are there other agencies or programs that help out? Yes, actually there are a number of agencies that provide assistance by temporarily easing compliance rules. So one of the key agencies that regulates benefits is the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS. Julie, how are they providing assistance? The IRS is helping out by providing relief for retirement plans. Specifically, they're relaxing procedural and administrative rules that normally apply to retirement plan loans and hardship distributions. As a result, eligible participants will be able to access their money more quickly with a minimum of red tape. In addition, the six-month ban on 401k and 403b contributions that normally affects employees who take hardship distributions will not apply. What about the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that provides benefit protections for workers covered by defined benefit pension plans? The PBGC is waiving late premium payment penalties and extending certain other deadlines for affected plans. The Department of Labor is also heavily involved in employee benefit regulation and enforcement. Julie, what are they doing? They work closely with the IRS to coordinate compliance relief in several areas. For example, there is relief available for plans filing 5,500 forms. And as was mentioned earlier, relief is provided to participants related to plan loans and hardship withdrawals. Plan sponsors and professional service providers are under strict rules to deposit participant contributions and loan repayments into the plan as soon as possible. The agencies provide relief by allowing delays due to the disaster. In addition, plan administrators are required to give 30 days advance notice if a retirement plan is going to have a blackout period. This usually comes up if a plan is switching vendors. Natural disasters, by definition, are beyond the control of the plan administrator, so agencies are cutting them some slack for the blackout notification rules. Also, COBRA rules that provide participants with health benefit continuation have a number of deadlines for plan sponsors and participants. The DOL assures those involved that if they act reasonably and in the best interest of workers and their families, that grace periods and other relief will be available. What about the Family and Medical Leave Act? The law does not require employers to give workers leave to deal with things like searching for missing relatives, cleaning out a flooded home, or salvaging personal property. Julie, does FMLA come into play here at all? It can come into play if a worker has a serious health condition as a result of the disaster, or if the worker needs to care for a child, parent, or spouse with a serious health condition. Of course, an employer can choose to be more generous and provide extra leave to workers through their HR and benefits policies. For example, the city of Houston is offering its workers concessions on health benefits by suspending the automatic termination rules for medical benefits, waiving prior authorization requirements, and easing prescription refill restrictions. In the area of paid leave, another option is to allow workers not affected by the disaster to donate paid leave to the workers who really need it. Speaking of leave donation, just this morning the IRS announced special tax relief that broadens the leave donation options. Under this program, employees may give up their vacation, sick, or personal leave in exchange for cash payments the employer makes 
to charitable organizations providing relief to victims of Hurricane Harvey. The donated leave will not be included in the wages of the employees, and employers will be permitted to deduct the cash payments as business expenses, as long as this process is done before January 1st of 2019. That brings up another topic we may wish to touch on, how plan sponsors and employers can prepare for disasters. This would be a great time for organizations to dust off their disaster plans and make sure they're up to date. Absolutely. Often one big challenge is communication. Accounting for all of your workers and getting information out to them can be difficult when a disaster cuts off traditional methods of communication. It may take creativity in the use of multiple channels of communication like social media and texting. Another key concept for HR and benefits during and after a disaster is flexibility. This is the perfect time to consider telecommuting options, flexible attendance and leave policies, and additional time off options like leave donation and advances of time off benefits. Don't forget about employee assistance programs. They can be extremely helpful in connecting workers with the resources that they need. Related to the Harvey disaster, in 2015, the Foundation conducted a brief study of workplace threats and how organizations are dealing with these threats. Responding organizations take a number of preventative measures to deal with these threats, including establishing a plan to communicate with and account for all workers after a disaster, or having a HR benefits backup plan. More than half of respondents have an established evacuation plan, while two in five have created an alternate workplace in advance. Respondents also offer a number of post-incident worker resources, including EAP access, benefits continuation, a number of special leave provisions, and critical incident or crisis response counseling. The full results of the study can be accessed at ifebp.org slash workplace threats. Justin, since we're sharing foundation research data, do you want to give them a quick preview of our newest survey results? Absolutely. The foundation conducted a paid leave study that will be released later this month titled Paid Leave in the Workplace. Respondents were asked about their employer-sponsored leave donation policies. According to the study, more than one quarter of organizations that offer a paid time off bank allow their workers to donate unused time to workers in need. Similarly, 30% allow workers to donate unused portion of their vacation days to workers in need. A slightly smaller proportion of organizations allow workers to donate unused paid sick days for this purpose. Along with PTO, paid vacation days, and paid sick leave, the study takes a deep dive into paid holidays, paid bereavement leave, and paid sabbaticals. So stay tuned for that. Justin, thanks for all that on-point data. Let's close out the episode with a true story offering lessons learned following Hurricane Katrina. It shows how we in the benefits industry can step up and make a positive difference for workers in need. So true story. True story. True story. So true story here for you. For our true story today, I'm chatting with Mo Hodes, a fund administrator with the UFCW National Health and Welfare Fund in Englewood, New Jersey. Welcome, Mo. Thank you, Julie. Welcome to you. So, Mo, can you tell us a little bit about your area of expertise in the benefits industry? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I've been a fund administrator for uh, more than 20 years. Uh, we, I currently uh, administer a um, national health and welfare fund. We uh, provide benefits to about 20,000 people in 19 states 
um, everything from medical to prescription to vision and dental, most of which we do on a self-insured, self-administered basis. So uh, we actually process the claims in our offices and we uh, provide member services to the members um, all around the country that, that interact with our fund office staff. Well, we have spent much of this episode talking about Hurricane Harvey and how it's impacting the world of employee benefits. Now, I know you've been through this before with Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? Yes. Um, that was really an eye-opener. I had previous experience uh, living through a terrible flood when I was a kid uh, where my parents' uh, business was under eight feet of water. So uh, when Katrina hit, I could really visualize what was going on, um, even though we had very good uh, TV coverage then. Uh, the questions that, that hit us in the fund office um, were obvious. I mean, we had uh, like a supermarket or a business that was underwater and, and destroyed. And, and so there was there was not going to not going to be any work. You weren't going to get any hours reported. Uh, contributions were not going to come in from the employer because they don't know who was working or who wasn't working and who had left the area. So we were faced with with issues that we had never been faced before, um, and we had to deal with them. One of the most probably striking examples that I can give you is um, we did get calls in the fund office at that time, mainly around uh, prescriptions and, and benefits, but prescriptions specifically. I remember one uh, member who called who was on blood pressure medication, and his spouse was on uh, insulin for, her, for diabetes, and they were moved out of New Orleans, and they took what they could, but they were in dire straits as to what they were going to do, everything from a, you know, a glucometer to measure the blood sugar to insulin, which needed to be refrigerated, to our members' uh, prescriptions for his hypertension. And luckily, the call came into the fund office. We were able to impose on our PBM to make sure that they could go to wherever they were and get to a local pharmacy so they could get an emergency fill of their prescription. That was striking and, and, and eye-opening to us. Uh, we knew we weren't going to get uh, reports of contributions. We knew we weren't going to get really even claims coming in because these people weren't going to the doctor uh, where they were. So we knew that was going to be delayed. We met with our trustees. We talked to the contributing employers as best we could, um, and we made sure that our member service representatives knew when someone called uh, they were going to be, have to be handled, um, especially because of the special circumstances. Um, you know, communications were terribly disrupted, disrupted, so we weren't able to communicate with a lot of the employers to find out if contributions would be coming in. But subsequent to, to that, um, we were able to work out arrangements between the trustees and the contributing employers um, so that we would get reports of the people that were in benefits, and we continued their benefits through this period of time until things could get straightened out. I will tell you that some contributing employers that we had in New Orleans never reopened, and, and they went out of business, um, and we were able to carry those people until we could get communicate with them and offer them at least COBRA continuation coverage after their employer uh, stopped making contributions for us. We're having that same problem um, now in Texas. We have a lot of members in Texas, a lot by, I'll say, you know, five or 600 members in, in various parts of Texas, and we're trying to communicate with the employers 
employer. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting because the employer may not be in Texas. You know, the main office may be someplace else, and, and they're trying to get communications going with their shops in Texas. And, and so we're having some difficulty contacting the people. But we have already had our meeting with our, our claims people, both here and we have an office in California that handles some of that work, too. And we've had our meeting with the claims people saying, you're going to get strange calls. You're going to get calls from, from people that don't know what to do, aren't at their homes, don't have a home, are displaced, and, and they need your help. And you've got to go out of your way to make sure they can see a doctor uh, in network wherever they are and, and give them a list of people to see. Uh, make sure you can contact a local pharmacy to, make, to get their prescriptions transferred and help them during this period of time where, you know, the, the, the agencies may be there and may be working toward us, but we're going to add another layer of, of comfort to these people's uh, dismay and, and help them out as best we can. So that's how we've prepared, Julie, and, and, and that's it seems to be working um, because of the stories we're hearing. Look, we're not getting too many calls. Uh, I expect a lot more this week than we got last week, um, but we're, we've made it the fund office ready to be able to handle them, and the trustees are on board with us doing whatever we can uh, to help the members and their dependents in the affected areas. Wow, well, it's really hard for me. I've not lived through anything like this, so to to try to really get my head around the whole idea of being so totally displaced that you're you're not in your home, you're not at your job, you're not in your community, you don't have your medications, you can't see your doctor. It's just really a a, a sad sad situation. So, Mo, you know, what lessons can our listeners take away from your experience? I think a fund office and a board of trustees have to focus on their members, and, and uh, they may not be able to reach out to them, but they have to be sensitized to the fact when someone calls that's in one of these affected areas, they've got to go out of their way to make sure they take care of them as best they can. You know, we frequently get questions in the fund office about, about benefits and, and claims and things like that. This is a whole different level. This is people saying, you know, I, I can't get my medication. I ran out. It's five days since I took my last pill. What can you, can you help me? And, and our people are told they have to pull out all the stops um, and do whatever they have to do to make sure we can take care of these members because we don't want to add to, to their discomfort or to their illnesses um, and, and help them in any way we can. Well, great. Thank you so much, Mo. It's been really great to talk to you, and thank you for sharing your story with us. You're welcome, Julie. Thank you very much. Thank you for that, Julie. Hearing stories like Mo's really compels us to help people in these situations. To show support to those impacted by Hurricane Harvey, including many International Foundation members living in the area, we're giving our staff an opportunity to donate to the Houston Food Bank. Staff contributions will be matched by the foundation. Many organizations like the Houston Food Bank continue to collect funds and goods for those affected. If you're looking for a way to help in the wake of Hurricane Harvey or Irma, consider a workplace collection drive of your own. Julie and Kelly, thank you for your updates, and thank you all for listening to Talking Benefits. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the podcast. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.